This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 200. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the website that I use to make my photography portfolio. You can find out all about Squarespace and get your own uh, website set up uh, at squarespace.com and use offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase. And by Brent Rents Lenses. If you need to rent a lens for the holidays coming up, you want to try a different lens, got a wedding or a big shoot, go to brentrentslenses.com and uh, you can use offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your purchase. Well, welcome back to episode 200 of the Improved Photography Podcast. Today, I am joined by Stephen Nolly and Connor Hibbs. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Well, in the first topic today, well, first I've got to say, we are doing no celebration of episode 200 here uh, because <laughs> I am right now uh, nose to the grindstone working on the Lightroom steel that comes out on Black Friday. Uh, it's the big thing of the year that, that we do for you guys, and uh, it... Uh, uses all of the time possible that I have uh, to to create it. So we're going to celebrate episode 213 uh, with some pretty cool things um, coming up in 13 weeks. Uh, but in the, in the start of the podcast today, we wanted to talk uh, today about how to win photography competitions. Um so I've been a judge for a number of, of photography competitions, um, and it's always interesting to see as, as the entries come through uh, to see uh, what kind of things most of the judges go for and what kind of things judges generally don't go for. Um, have you guys done much with, with photography competitions? Have you entered or judged? Truthfully, I've I've judged a handful, but I've never really entered too many on my own. Um, anything that I have, it's been very small local things instead of anything large. Um, so, yeah, it, it's something that really the, the technical side of photography is one of the things that is most judged in my experience. Um, I've gone and witnessed a lot of local um, photography competitions, but it's just never seemed like something that was super appealing to me. What about you, Stephen? I've been to expos and photo shows and things like that where they'll have live competitions and things like that. But I think, I mean, I know these online photo competitions get really, they're very popular and they get thousands of competitions. I've never done any of those. Um, I feel like there's a there's a particular skill to that. I mean, a lot of these are uh, post-processing masters. Like these are guys that really have their technique down, and they have a very um, a very strong look and a very strong uh, photographic technique. Um, so, so do you so see that it, though? It, because I, it's rare that I find a competition that allows any editing other than just very basic stuff. Oh, really? Because I've seen a lot where they, they tend to be a little bit, I mean, there's there's a strong processing in them. Like they tend to, like uh, these, aren't, these aren't professional photographers. These are photographers that have a, a, a strong online presence. Um, there's a photographer, and I can't remember his name right now. He a, a few months ago he he said something really inflammatory online and got a lot of hate mail. But then I looked at his photos, and he's won tons of uh, of competitions, and it's because he he post processes it 
Um, and they all look they all look gorgeous. I mean, they, it's it's all composited and all of it looks like every single thing in his portfolio looks like it was shot on the same perfect day with the same perfect background <laughs> and perfect sunset. Like his entire portfolio is that is that one look. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, that's that's all I've seen as far as uh, the online competitions. I haven't I haven't entered any myself. That's um, that's that's the extent of my experience. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed as well. Online, they definitely tend to go towards heavily post-processed, um, it like very saturated colors. Um, and I, man, what there was one that I was looking at recently that was actually pretty cool. It was like a photography marathon um, where everybody had whatever ten days to get a bunch of different kinds of shots, and they could make teams. And it just seemed like all of the teams that had actually won them. It wasn't great. They did an okay job and just kind of oversaturated their images. And it looked it looked okay. Where every time I've gone to anything either local in my city or there are a couple others up in Denver, which is a slightly bigger city, um, it tends mm. to be kind of saturated with a lot of old school photographers, film photographers. And they're more on the side that you're talking about, Jim, where they don't want to see a lot of post-processing. Yeah, if they I, see too much post-processing, it looks uh, and they get judged pretty harshly. Well, yeah, and, right. and not just being judged harshly, but it's rare that I see a competition that even allows that. Uh, that you know, it's, yeah. it's in the rules of the competition mm. that you can't even do much, which is one of the reasons why I don't have an interest in a lot of photography competitions, uh, because it, it kind of takes whatever the contest creator's vision of the way art should be created, and it forces it on everybody who wants to participate in their competition. Um, and so, so that's something that uh, that I am not a fan of. However, I did um, judge a competition called uh, Photo Decathlon uh, that was in uh, Utah oh, a month and a half ago or something. <laughs> it was like <laughs> I was on this webinar for like five hours judging photos. Uh, it was uh, it was quite the experience, uh, but it was interesting. There were there was a panel f- of five judges. And so we would see, uh, you know, the different photos in that category. And, uh, and so sometimes we'd just say, all right, everybody pick your favorite of the judges and then we'll all say it at once. And everybody would say a different one. And some of them were just mind blowing to me. Cause I mean, these are all really accomplished photographers. It's not like there was somebody in there that was getting sucked by little gimmick techniques or something, uh, really accomplished photographers. And, uh, we couldn't agree. We couldn't agree on a winner, even when to me it felt like oh, there's a clear winner in here. Um, it's just it's amazing how subjective these things are. And so I would put that as a criteria, you know, as you're looking at a contest to to enter. I think it's important that there's a panel of judges and not a single judge uh, because there you're just going to, you know, you're going to hear things that are so uh, particular to one person uh, and, you know, it can leave you feeling bad. You know, you didn't do well in the competition. It's just one person's ideas. So I think going with a, a panel of judges in a, in a competition is definitely helpful. Uh, it's helpful to me, you know, if I'm judging a competition, I feel a lot more confident when I know there are several judges going through it. Uh, for that very reason, I have my own biases of things that I like and don't like. For example, uh, a lot of the photos would come through, tons of them are just a little overcooked on the colors, just, just a little overdone. And for me, when I see that as a judge, I usually kind of overlook that because it's like, you know, if you did everything else right, really creative composition, a great location and everything. 
Eh, colors are probably a little overcooked for what I personally like. I would overlook that a lot more than a photo that's just boring, even though it's technically correct. And I know a lot of people don't think that way, would approach it the opposite way. Um, so I, I would guess, I would say the, the very first thing that I would do if you're interested in entering a competition is get all of your fundamentals perfect. Don't overlook any of the fundamentals. If your photo is slightly out of focus, if your photo is slightly has uh, not such good exposure, etc., cetera, uh, go after that kind of thing first. Uh, what do you think, Connor? I, I would say absolutely. I mean, if you if you can't feel confident in shooting and just focusing on the thing that you're shooting, you're probably going to be in a situation that you get a little bit overwhelmed. Um, it, it tends to be something that really any good competition even even some of the more basic amateur levels the people at least have their basics down their fundamentals um and anything beyond that is really what we're looking at I and mean, if you're missing focus on an image that's going to be an issue in any competition that you go to and i remember taking a look at that um the photo decathlon that you were a judge of and i think that that was probably something that this photo marathon that i have viewed witness to in the past was kind of trying to rip off because in that case the people were really professional and they were being able to shoot everything in a very artistic way and put everything together nicely so i think that if you can get your fundamentals down even i i forgot where i was going with that yeah, actually well, i think the reason it's so important here to get everything right technically is because somebody else will Somebody yes, else is going to take a picture that's properly exposed and in focus, etc. And so if you don't have that first, you really stand a little chance of winning unless you have a very forgiving judge uh, on that particular thing. So even if your photo is boring, at least get your fundamentals right and then work to other things. And that's not just about in the field. Okay, we're always trying to get our fundamentals right, but it has a lot to do with the image that you actually pick to submit. If when you look at it, you know there's a little something that's technically right, wrong, it's not good for a competition because that's so easy to pass over your photo when there will be so many others that do have all the fundamentals correct. And I'm not even super picky about that kind of thing. You know, all kinds of photo clubs and stuff. A lot of people are turned off by those photo clubs because, um, because it's all like, you know, grab a magnifying glass and look at your print from two inches away. And it's like, ah, I see pixelation. Uh, and you know, that's not something I'm interested in. Uh, but, but the other things you got to get right. Okay. So that's first, you got to get your fundamentals, right? Um, the second thing is use a technique. I think a photo competition is a great place to make a technique be the forefront of the image. You know, do some gel shifting. Uh, put on a CTO gel over your flash and and shoot it at the at the the model, and then uh, use your white balance to turn everything else in the background really blue. You know, a technique that's really in the forefront makes your photos stand out from all the others that are um, that usually aren't. Um, or you know, doing something uh, you know a very strong black and white. Um, that's it's it's more of a technique. Um, Whatever it is, doing something that's that's very technique intensive, I find does very well in, in a photo contest. The other thing that I would say is as you're choosing a photo contest, 
don't even bother with any of the competitions that are uh, that you have to get a certain number of likes. Uh, I just really don't like that, you know, where uh, they get get a whole bunch of photographers to submit photos and then whoever gets the most likes from their friends wins the competition. Well, that really has nothing to do with the merits of the photo. And so I really don't like that competition. It's really just about clickbait for the person holding the competition. And so I think as photographers, that's one thing I would suggest to avoid. Yeah, those things are always popularity contests, and especially the ones where you have to go in and sign up on an email list for the people in order to vote for your buddy, and then your buddy will just constantly be saying, please, one more, one more, like somebody else. That doesn't give you any kind of useful feedback. I think the only reason to really enter a competition is because you're going to be pushing your own boundaries and challenging yourself um, in different things with technique, finding any way to push yourself is going to be an awesome reason to get into a competition. The other one that I see is that you're going to get feedback from people that know what they're talking about. Um, As you said, a panel of judges is always going to be the best because you get a variety of opinions. Um, But the the only reason to get in a competition is because you're going to be gaining something from it, not just, oh, there's a possibility if I get 5,000 likes from all these other people and I'm going to be battling it out for weeks. There, there's a possibility I might get a new filter for a lens or something like that. It, yeah. it just, I, I agree with you. I don't like those competitions that are photo competitions in quotes. And really they're just popularity contests. And I think that's why we see a lot of those oversaturated colors is because when, when, when non-photographers see a picture and they see bright, saturated photos, it appeals to them for, for some reason on a, on an instant level, they just say, Oh, it's, it's more colorful. I, I seem to like it better just because there's more color there. Um, and I think that's why we see a lot of that online. Um, but a, a trained photographer will say, uh, you know what? That's not, that's not quite true to life. That's not exactly, um, that's not exactly what we want to go for. So, yeah, there's a there's a very big difference between having um, photographers be your judge versus um, the the average uh, general public. Cool. Absolutely. Well, Connor, you wanted to talk a little bit today about how to get inspired when you're editing photos. Uh, what's what's kind of your process when you're editing? You know, it, it, this is actually something that I just wanted to have a conversation with you guys. Um, I've, over the past few months, been trying to experiment with different ways of editing. Not not techniques of editing, but, you know, listening to music or watching a mu- movie or listening to an audiobook and just seeing which ways I am most efficient, um, going back and kind of looking over the work and seeing, okay, am I paying more attention to my editing in when watching a movie versus listening to a podcast? Um, and, and paying attention to my speed as well. So I'm wondering, what do you guys do when you edit? And have you tried multiple things? Do you pay attention to this kind of thing? Yeah, I've actually been doing a ton of editing this week. I'm working on the presets for the Lightroom Steel coming out on Cyber Monday uh, in just three weeks. Um, And so I have been going through a ton of my photos and finding as I'm, you know, to do a good job um, in creating the presets, I want to look at them on a lot of different photos and and make sure that they're going to work generally. So it's not like this one niche preset that that only works in a specific situation. Uh, anyway, right. so as I'm going through my my 
portfolio uh, or just old images and trying to resurrect them. I found so many photos uh, that I was able to completely change and resurrect uh, with some editing. In fact, I got sidetracked majorly uh, this week working on a photo that I really liked, but um, just it needed a new sky uh, with a, a dancer in a big flowy purple dress. And it needed a new sky, and so I, I spent a couple hours um, editing that together um, and creating something, I think, a lot more artistic uh, from doing it. And one thing that got me inspired uh, from doing this is actually watching movies. Uh, you mentioned watching yeah. movies, and I think it's really helpful. Uh, I kind of got the, the idea for a couple Lightroom presets from watching the show Designated Survivor. I think it's on ABC. Have you guys seen that? I have seen not. the trailer. It's totally I have, cool. I haven't seen it yet. That's it's the totally Keith cool. Kiefer Sutherland one, right? Yeah. Jack Bauer becomes a president. Yes. Sweet. It's so cool. Uh, Congress gets blown to bits, and uh, he's the designated survivor, you know, the one person in the cabinet that, that goes elsewhere. Anyway, um, they have this very cinematic look um, in the show uh, to kind of make it seem, uh, you know, more dramatic. And so yeah. I went to Lightroom and I spent a long time, like the last two days, literally, uh, learning how to do that. And the way that I uh, learned to do it is you go into your tone curve and in your shadows, you make a uh, you make a point like a little bit up from the bottom and then you double click the bottom point so it goes straight out. And then it makes, I don't know how to describe it, it like flattens out your shadows uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. If you if you didn't just see it, uh, you'll see it. If you get the Lightroom steel, you'll see it because I am doing it in a number of the presets. I just really it just feels very uh, dramatic and cinematic. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that's you know from watching TV one thing that that's helped. So yeah, and and when I'm actually editing. I always listen to music. I can't hear any spoken words or else it distracts me. I listen to audiobooks like all day long, but when I'm editing, I just like music. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 the same way. When I I mean I I I actually I hate the 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 editing process. I much prefer to be out shooting in the field but at the same time i don't it's not finished until I've, i i don't trust anyone else to edit my own photos so it's it's got to be me so I, I i procrastinate as much as i can and then when i have to do it i sit myself down i have a spotify playlist it's all it's nonverbal. it's got to be nonverbal. i can't have people talking um it's some jazz and there's some some blues in there uh and then i will just uh i'll go through it uh, the first thing i do is i just do a pass of it's just a binary pass of yes no yes no and I try to keep as many as I can, but there are obviously there are some shots that are just not usable. So I just try to get rid of those as much as possible. Um, and then I'll do another pass to see what what I start to like. And then after that, I'll pick one that I really like and then I'll start to fudge around with that um, and then build build something off of that look. And then um, and then I'll copy and paste for whatever was in that same times in that like bracket of photos. And then I'll try to build a new look for each. You know, if, it, if I'm doing an event, there might be one at each location or one at each time of day. And I'll, and I'll try to build a new look for each uh, for each setup. Yeah, the other that's, thing that's, that I do when I'm editing is I, it, I find it really easy to get locked into a rut of just doing mm. the same things over again. I fall into that all the time where I just kind of open a landscape and it's like shadows up, highlights down, contrast at 20. You know, I just <laughs> yeah. blah, I could just do it while I'm kind of sleeping um, th that I do to the photo, kind of the same look on every landscape. And so um, one thing that really does help me 
a lot. I know I talk about presets a lot, but it's it's my workflow in Lightroom. It really just makes all the difference for me is I just mouse over those Lightroom presets. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. you can see in that top right, that navigator pane, you can see an idea of kind of what, what you're looking at uh, with that. And all the time I'll mouse over them and I'll think, whoa, that's kind of cool with an old vintage look, or that's kind of cool, you know, really popping uh, the, the colors on this one or, or a black and white or whatever uh, that, you know, sometimes you, you just don't think of it because you're in that rut. And so I, I think, uh, you know, presets or, you know, going out and learning a new tutorial with a video, whatever, just something to keep you from getting in that just recipe of just open a photo and just go to town doing your normal thing. I, I totally agree with you on that one, Jim. Like I, I tend to find, especially if it's like family shoots or headshots or anything where I'm doing more volume, I, I tend to open up a movie and I, I loved your discussion about finding inspiration in movies, but that can only go so far. You know, every once in a while you'll see a scene and like, that's super cool. But I have a whole list of presets um, of things that I don't necessarily even need to apply them to just go with that look but it's nice to kind of it's draw some inspiration point. and build some ideas and you know maybe try something and say okay well how could i tweak this for this particular shoot um so i definitely i love you bringing up the preset thing because that definitely can be a good way to get a good starting point as you said yeah yeah it's it's rare honestly if it's a photo that i really really care about you know i'll use the preset and just leave it all the time for just you know your average just kind of it's just to shoot, you know, just, you know, photos yeah. of the family, whatever, just a regular old preset. I'll just click it, you know, uh, but if it's a photo I really care about, it's very rare that I'm going to click a preset and be done. That doesn't mean that yeah. the preset wasn't helpful. Right. It's all about that starting point and the vision that you can see in a flash by just clicking one thing instead of like moving 30 fl sliders and then be like, oh, that didn't work and start over. <laughs> you know, it's just so much more efficient. Now, yeah, let me uh, ask you guys, when you when you decide to go black and white do you shoot for black and white or is that usually something that you come to in the editing process i think that's a great question um it really depends for me um whenever it's people and whatnot i'll usually shoot a lot of stuff with the intention of it being color and if i whatever the mood that they're going for if it calls for something in black and white then i will intentionally try and get some shots in black and white mm. um there are other times when i'll shoot something without having that in my mind at all and then I just look at it and go, man, the contrast in this is beautiful, just natural right. light. And that's usually when I go black and white. It's not necessarily shooting with the intention of being black and white. Mm -hmm. It's It tends to be more, uh, you know, this photo lends itself to that. Um, yeah. But there are other times, I mean, I've... It, I do a lot of studio work where I'm shooting in very controlled lighting environments that I mean, yeah. I, before I even start a shoot, I will have in mind that I want something to look black and white and I want a certain style to it. Um, so yeah, that's my answer. What about you, Jim? Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't ever, um, it's rare. Sometimes I'll be out in the field and be like, yeah, this is black and white, you know, mm. uh, but it's rare that I see that. Usually it's when I'm mousing over presets and I'll see one that's like, oh, that's cool. All, I don't think, I mean, I've tried it, but I, I never have as a, as a part of my workflow uh, to in the field change my, my camera to be black and white. I know some people do that, uh, but for me, uh, it just doesn't make much sense because it's rare that I even know in the field that it's going to be a black and white photo. Uh, so I just shoot it in the field and then I'll, I'll try different looks uh, when I get back. Mm. But uh, black and whites are not all created equal. <laughs> 
But we want to take a second and thank a couple companies that have made the Improved Photography Podcast possible today. The first is uh, the company that provides my photography portfolio, which is Squarespace. Uh, I know a lot of us uh, hosts on, on Improved Photography are using um, uh, Squarespace to host our photography portfolios. Uh, I, I like Squarespace because it's easy to use. Um, I, it's uh, you know simple to update your site. I've spent quite a bit of time updating my site this week uh, because I've, I've been going through creating Lightroom presets and I have found so many photos that I had skipped over before. Um, and it's just so quick to just you know export it and get it right onto your website. Um, I, I, that's, I, I've just really enjoyed doing that. Um, so you can check out Squarespace and get 10% off your purchase by going to squarespace.com and using offer code improve to get 10% off your purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. And also I want to talk a little bit today about Fracture. Uh, this is available at fractureme.com. Um, so Fracture makes these really, really beautiful prints. Um, I had a couple printed this uh, this week um, that uh, Fracture sent me some credit to try out. Um, and I am over the moon excited with these things. Um, they are... Uh, they're just beautiful. They're printing them directly on glass. And so you get this big sheet of glass uh, with like some foam core on the back and then a little uh, hanging area that's that's metal. So you can, you know, put a screw in the wall or whatever, a nail, and then just hang it right in on there easily. The detail is great. Um, everything came out just absolutely perfect. The exposure matched my color calibrated screen. It was perfect. Uh, I underexposed my, or I undersaturated my pictures a little bit because I, I had thought that they might come out a little bit too saturated, but I was wrong. I should have left it just exactly as the color managed screen. Uh, they, they really are doing a nice, nice job. Um, and, and that's something that you really can't find with, with all the printing companies. Sometimes it's really hard to get all the exposure and color right. And, and Fracture is obviously doing a very nice job of it because this matches precisely what I had on my screen. So uh, congratulations to them for, for making such a beautiful print. If you're looking for something unique, something you can hang on the wall and not even bother to buy a, a frame with, uh, then Fracture is an excellent option. Um, you can order at FractureMe.com slash podcast. That's FractureMe.com slash podcast. And don't forget to mention Improved Photography in their one question survey and we thank them for their support of improve photography well steven you brought up the topic you want to talk a little bit about photography work for hire tell us what you're thinking there yeah i've been having a lot of clients lately and i don't know if uh, if other photographers bump into this but the the concept of i mean a lot of times you have to educate your clients on on uh what they want and what they're paying for uh the concept that comes up uh, that i have to talk about a lot is uh is this a work for hire or is this freelance? Um, and what are the licensing rights or are they buying the whole thing outright? Um, I mean, a lot of my clients, what they what they want is they'll will negotiate their startup company or their a new a new small brand, and they and they want something, and we negotiate a very very low rate because, like, my heart goes out for these for these startups, um, and and they and they want something at a very low rate, and I want to help them build their company. Um, but what they're paying for isn't necessarily the same as what uh, I'm prepared to deliver for that price point. So normally what I end up giving is a licensing agreement for 
uh, internet and social media and web use. Uh, and I try to tell them this beforehand because early on when I was doing this, they they would just want everything. They would want they would want all the raws and they would want to be able to use it for catalog work or prints or, or any kind of flyers and stuff like that. So. Um, so what I tell them is uh, the basic agreement, the cheapest way to get great looking photos for them, and that's my pitch to them, is uh, I work as a freelancer and I license them the photos. I'll do the shoot for them. Okay, I've got uh, to push back a little bit though. Like, yeah, yeah, please. Like, I, I, <laughs> no, I, please. I think I understand what you're going to say. Uh, uh-huh. I totally do, but I, I just want to talk from the small business owner's point of view for a second. Yeah. Why exactly does it cost more money to get a photo licensed for a catalog as online. Like it's the exact same amount of work for you. And so why not give them what they want so desperately? I think, and this is for me, it's the return on investment. Um, what you're giving them is not just a photo. It's the ability for them to generate income. So if, I mean, and this is the, uh, this is the, uh, the socialist in me. I, I believe that the, 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 the labor has been done by the photographer. So the photographer should at least benefit or reap in some of the benefits uh, of the labor. If the, if the, uh, but you are, if the bourgeois. you did your work. It's the same amount of work. They're, they won all these rights, um, and, and that's them. You know, they're making the catalog. You're not making the catalog. You're doing a photo shoot, so give them. <laughs> well, if photos. I'm doing if, right, that's when I would give them a work for hire. Like I remember when I was when I was just starting out, I found out that the guy who designed the Nike logo got paid like fifty bucks for that logo, and Nike has made a lot of money based on the beautiful design that that guy did. Okay, so wait, we got to stop for a second. What's work for hire? Let's talk about that. Work for hire is someone else is buying everything. You are you are coming to them. You are doing the whole thing, and you own no copyrights. You are selling them the copyrights. You are working for them, and they own the copyrights. Yeah, very much like an employee. So if I have an if Improved Photography has an employee. Um, you know, if if you go off and do your do a different photo shoot outside of work time, that's that that's different. Uh, but like, you know, if it's work time and you, and I'm paying you to be here and you're you do a shoot uh, in the course of business, then I own those photos. Actually, you don't. You don't have the copyright to those photos. So that's, that's correct. That's for made for hire. Work for hire. Now, generally, uh, like if I, you know, somebody is, uh, you know, a you know, wedding photographer. That's not how this works. You own the copyright because you're the one that fixed this this uh, this art into a tangible form. I own the copyright, and I'm licensing the photos so that you can use them for whatever purposes. Absolutely. So, so that's that's the general difference between a, a work for hire and and uh, otherwise just freelance work. And this gets sticky when we have something in between. Uh, for example, a principal photographer um, is shooting the wedding, and you're now the second photographer. You're being paid. Uh, you're taking the photos and fixing them into a tangible form. And so, who has the copyright now? Uh, yes, you're being. If hired, you're the second uh, photographer, and, the I would say is, that the who has that copyright. Um, like I, I do second, I do second shooting for some weddings, and the the contract, and we we talk about it because it's very important. If you are being the second shooter for someone else's wedding company, you are shooting in a work for hire capacity. You do not own that copyright. You are shooting for them for their company. They can use those photos, and then they pay you a rate which compensates you for that. Yeah, I, I think it's just very important that if you're doing this as a second shooter, you must have a contract. 
uh, with Absolutely. the principal photographer. Uh, you don't want to just deal with whatever the default legal rules are. Figure this out and make sure you both agree and understand. Definitely so. That's something that you need to have a conversation and then have some written. I mean, contracts, a lot of people often think that it has to be some fancy legal document. And oftentimes for something like this, it needs to just be an agreement in which the information has been written down and confirmed by both parties. Um, I, I'm going to kind of defer to you on that one, Jim, and make sure that I'm not just making things up. But that's that's the way that I've always understood it, is that for something like this, you don't necessarily have to have a super formal contract no. um, as long as you have an agreement. Yeah, you really don't. This isn't like you're writing a will. Uh, you yeah, know, this is right, simple. Right. If you just, you know, just grab a piece of paper and say, hey, this is what we're, we've agreed to. You know, just explain what you both agreed to. You know, Bob can use these photos on social media and in his portfolio, but he can't sell them. You know, Jim can do this. And then both sign and date. It doesn't have to be crazy complicated. At least have something. You know, if you're not real sophisticated, you aren't going to hire a lawyer to write your contract. Do something at least. Go to improvephotography.com and go to the store and get our uh, legal contracts. 15 bucks and you'll get what you need uh, to, to get started. It uh, just doesn't have to be super complicated. But this is a great topic, Stephen, because it's it's something that we all just need to be aware of. Uh, and it's part of just being respectful to others as that you work this thing out in advance. But the reason that I pushed back, Stephen, is this. Yeah. I, I, I work with, with uh, uh, a lot of different creatives on things. Um, for example, um, I'm going to be careful how I say this. Um, I, I worked with a particular creative uh, locally in Boise. Uh, that, that we agreed was going to do some video uh, video work. And he's an awesome guy. really like working with this person. Uh, but we had a disagreement afterward because uh, the agreement was that he was going to record the video and then edit it. And that it first of all, it took a long time, longer than it should have mm. to get it back. And, and the quality was just really poor of the editing, just really poor. Uh, I, I felt not up to the standard. And so I said, you know what? Just give me the video and I'll do all the editing. Huge uh. concession on my point. Huge concession because now he doesn't have to do like 10 hours of video editing. Uh, right, and I right. got pushback from it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe right. it. It's like I'm yeah. taking 10 hours of work from you uh, and I'm not happy with it. I'm trying to be the nice guy here um, and, and just say, hey, you know what? Let me just take care of this for you. And I just... It, I think sometimes we as media professionals get so tight on that copyright, like, no, I own it. You can't touch it. I'm the one who edits it. Uh, that it, sometimes it leads us to just not serve the client well. And, sure. And, and you know, uh, yeah, and I've experienced out. It was that. totally cool. Not a problem. Yeah. I've worked with them in the, uh, after that, too. But, um, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, like for me personally, I would like to hire a photographer here in Boise to photograph me and my family or our baby when she was born. Sometimes it's like, I, I just don't want to do a shoot. I just want to like be a client for once, you know, uh, and just go get family photos taken. I wouldn't right. agree to anybody doing our family photos if they won't just send me the raw files and nobody will do that. Uh, it just, just drives me crazy sometimes. Because you're also a photographer. Like, you you know what you want and you know how you want to post-process them. But as a photographer, like, as the creative who puts your copyright on there, like, I want to make sure that, gosh, like, it would kill. Like, I've had, I've delivered photos to clients before and they put them up on social media and they'll just slap some filters on them and they look awful. And, um, you know, that doesn't represent me. That's, that's my work and it's a poor representation of me. Um, and on the same side, like, 
when I shoot video, like I when I shoot video for clients and I'm working in a freelance capacity as a producer for them, I know the footage I got. Like I get a lot of fantastic footage, and I know that with that footage, I'll give them a 30 second or a 90 second commercial. I can cut three more commercials from that same footage, uh, but the but the return on investment on that they are going to profit three times as much as that. So those are three more products that I now lose the ability to sell to them if I just give them the footage and and, and have them uh, have them edit it. So yeah, it's it's definitely something that needs to be discussed beforehand. There has to be a meeting of the minds that. These are the expectations of what the job is, and this is the compensation, and both parties feel that this is fair. Yeah, I, okay, and, and I'm, I'm totally agreeing with you. I'm, I'm having fun with this conversation. I hope you don't think <laughs> I'm um, But that's why, in my opinion, that's why photographers are having such a hard time in the marketplace. We're not mm. serving the client, we're serving ourselves. Can you imagine if you went into a Nike store to buy a shirt and they were like, whoa, chubby, I'm sorry, but if you put this shirt on, you're going to not represent the Nike brand well. And so better move over to Aber Abercrombie. You know how insulting that would be? And that's what we're doing as photographers when we say, no, 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 you can't edit these photos. This is a representation of me. And if it doesn't look good on you, then uh, then it, it comes back on me. Uh, or, or a doctor who says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to order all your food from here because if you order donuts out there and get a heart attack, people are going to think I'm not a very good doctor. I, I mean, it's just it's it's nuts when we think about this in other industries. Uh, but somehow as photographers, I think we've convinced ourselves that it's OK. Am I crazy? I'm I don't know. I like. I would. I would. I would make the relate uh, relate this kind of as uh, if you were Nike and uh, somebody wanted to wear your your uh, your jersey and they were a professional athlete. You want to make sure that that athlete stays in shape. If they end up letting themselves go, so you, you know what? Say, hey, give me the shirt back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to pull that deal. Yeah. Um, you know. I mean, because I think with copyright, the only thing that you the only thing that we are selling is the copyright. It's it's this it's this artistic uh, form. That's that's the only thing. Um, now I do like when when I do work for hire, and I have no problem with work for hire. In fact, I love doing work for hire because it means I show up on set, I do my job, I hand over the card, and I go home. And this that's kind beautiful. of a nice it's thing beautiful. to do. I yeah, agree. I mean it's 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 very relaxing. Um, but I know that someone else is going to is someone has paid me for that, and I've given up my copyright for that. Um, if I'm going to put my name on it, you know, I mean, we are our brands, especially in the age of social media. We are the brand. If if we have pictures out there that that don't represent us very well, then you know that 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 degrades our market value. If we have a lot of photos that are out of focus or just uh, just finished in a, in a very amateurish way that reflects upon us. And then when other people do a Google search on our work and those photos come up, that brings down our market value on what we are then able to charge. So it's, it's I mean, I, that, that's why I end up charging more for a work for hire, for hire than I do uh, for these freelancer things. A lot of these freelancer things are very low rates because I... I understand these startup companies and and these these small brands. They they need photos. 
Um, but there is a big epidemic of people feeling that photographers do not need to be paid or they need to be paid in exposure or that it'll be good for them to get their name out there. And I cannot disagree with this anymore. Like th that is the wrong way to think about photography. Photographers are skilled. There's a lot of effort and passion and work and study and investment of time and money in our gear. Uh, I mean, a lot of these low paying things, they don't, they don't cover our insurance. If, if our camera yeah, breaks, then yeah, yeah, we need to be paid. So, no question about that. Yeah. I, and yeah, I, so, yeah, I appreciate your opinions. I think it's fun to go back and forth with you a little <laughs> bit on this. Uh, that was of course. awesome. Thank you. Um, and you well, know, I've I've been completely silent through this entire conversation <laughs> because honestly, I think that both of you have excellent points. But there was one one little phrase that was mentioned in there that I think really wraps everything up, and it is that the agreement is something that both parties can agree upon, and both parties think it's fair. So I think either way, I mean, yeah, you're right. We we as photographers need to be pay paid appropriately, but the way that we decide to structure our business, uh, I mean, I think you can go and deliver everything in the way that Jim suggests or do something in a freelance licensed way. It just needs to be something that is going to serve everybody. And I think one important thing as photographers is that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to our clients needs. And that's the most important thing to talk about in this discussion. Right. Very cool. All right, you guys, uh, we have lots more to talk about in this episode. Um, uh, Connor, you wanted to talk today about some cheap photography items. Yeah, um, so this is another discussion-based topic that I wanted to bring up, um, but I've noticed that there are a handful of things that I use in just about every situation when, when I'm shooting that aren't necessarily photo gear, um, but are things that I have kind of made into photo gear. Right, um, so my, my, one thing that I absolutely love are just, it's plastic clamps and they're I, mean, I don't think that there's any brand or anything like that you've probably seen them before they're just little black plastic clamps that have orange tips on them and i use them all the time for i mean weighing things down or that i use them on backdrops i i will hold reflectors up because you can just clip them onto the bottom of a reflector and it can stand up on its own um and it's it's not photo gear but it's still something that i have made into photo gear another thing that i love is um foam core and like poster boards which i can use for flags i can take poster boards and roll them up and make them into a makeshift snoot every once in a while when i need one of those um reflectors flags i mean they're, they're just awesome so do you guys have any other things that you would say aren't necessarily photo gear that are still some necessities that you want to have with you when you're shooting um, you know what I use, and this is, it's it, it's always looks so janky when I pull it out. Um, if you just go to Home Depot and you get those, they're, they're pony clamps or A clamps. They're just those really big uh, metal spring-loaded clamps. Um, they actually have holes in uh, in both the, the clipping end and in the handle end. And then if you get a quarter 20 screw and a quarter 20 nut and you put it through one of those holes, you now have a clamp with a tripod thread. Um, oh. And if you have a smaller, if you have a smaller uh, mirrorless camera, or if you want to just, uh, if you have a flash that has a uh, that has a quarter twenty thread in it, you can clamp those pretty much anywhere. They're great for if you want to do um, like uh, vlogging or clamping clamping your camera to the end of a table or something like that. It's a it's a quick and dirty way to just get a get a camera or a flash somewhere where you wouldn't otherwise be able to get it. Yeah, that's that's super cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. One that I've used before is uh, insulation board. You can just get at Lowe's or Home Depot. These come mm. in gigantic sheets, like, you know, four feet by six feet. 
uh, giant sheets, and then um, you can use them just as like a huge reflector uh, behind uh, behind somebody, or you can uh, get actually just some duct tape, and you can tape two together and they, you know, they stand up, um, and it can be, uh, what do you call these things? V flats. Uh, the V flats. Oh yeah. Great as, as a V flat, uh, just using these also for product photography is, is, you know, white background, something like that. They're cheap. They're like 10 bucks and you can get a gigantic one. Um, and they're very useful. And you're talking about like the, it's almost like a styrofoam, but with yep. a shiny reflector yeah, side, they, right? They have one side that's shiny reflective and the other side that's white. Usually they'll have some advertising on it as well. Um, and so I will either cover up the advertising side with white duct tape, or sometimes you can find some that you can actually peel that off. Uh, so you just right. get the plain white. That was going to be my question for you. Cause I've heard people that have recommended using insulation board before, but every time I've gone to look for something, there's always like a bright pink logo or a bright blue logo yeah. that ends up giving some color cast. So yeah. Okay. Lots Covering it up. Lots of white duct makes tape. sense. <laughs> An- another, another janky thing that you can just keep in your car is uh, if you go to the dollar store and you find those uh, windshield reflectors that you put on your windshield to kind of keep the heat out. Um, oh. You can usually find a silver one of those for, for like a buck or so in there. You know, you can just throw them in the, in the back of your car and forget about it. Totally. That's, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've also found that fishing line can be useful just for tying stuff. I mean, it's relatively strong. And the thing is you can tie it in places where other like using rope or something else would be in the shot but mm. having a fishing line because it's so thin and small um you don't notice it so much so that that would be another little cheap thing that i keep along with me in my bag at all times another quick uh, tip about fishing line is if you put that uh, either on the back of the lens right before it connects to the camera or on the front of the lens uh you can fake an anamorphic flare no. with the lens with that yeah that's pretty cool oh, that's cool i haven't tried that Okay, one that I've done is uh, putting a Pez dispenser on your hot shoe. Uh, there's a little <laughs> bottom of the Pez dispenser, and it's uh-huh. fun. You have to like shave a little bit of the Pez dispenser on the bottom uh, to make it fit in, but it's really fun when you're uh, like taking pictures of the kids that you know uh, you can shoot a little bit cute. and then let them. That's cute. Pez it up, get a little little <laughs> sugar coursing through. The I was veins. I was a little confused <laughs> by that at first, like saying, "Jim, do you need to snack in the middle of shooting? <laughs> if you get hungry, <laughs> it's right there." It's oh yeah, right and there. those pez will just fill you right up. <laughs> uh, also, the, uh, this little screw on the top of a lamp is the exact oh, right. same size you need for a uh, for the tripod socket on the bottom of your camera. So if you like want to take a group photo. Um, and you don't have anywhere to put the camera, like at a you know party, family party or something. Just yeah. take the lamp off, and you will look like the MacGyver of photography. <laughs> it is so cool. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! But those are exactly the kinds of things that I was wanting to talk about. Just <laughs> some nice little things that don't necessarily cost a ton that you can still use in fun and interesting ways. Very cool. Cool. Well, today we wanted to, in our 12-minute skill, talk about time-lapse photography. Um, Man, there are some incredible, uh, just mind-blowing time-lapses that I keep uh, seeing coming from other photographers. And I shoot them periodically, but not nearly enough. And so I I just wanted to kind of give a quick, you know, kind of a get-started guide for for people that are um, starting into time-lapse to begin with. And then talk about some of the more advanced tip, tips uh, and tricks, things that we've found to be helpful. So the first question is this. you you got to figure out a way for your camera to get set up. On Nikon, this is easy. Most Nikons have this built in. 
Um, newer Canon cameras are going to have this built in. A lot of the older cameras aren't going to have this uh, built in. Steven, you wouldn't know of a way to like give some advanced features to Canon cameras, do you? Uh, I, I have heard, I have heard um, that Magic Lantern, actually, there are some fantastic intervalometer uh, things that are built into Magic Lantern. Um, I mean, there, there, are, there are a couple ways to do it. There's the easy way, which is in Magic Lantern, you use, uh, you use the frame rate instead of the intervalometer mode. Um, and it'll just shoot one frame every two seconds, every five seconds, however long you wanted to set it for. Um, or you can go with a traditional time-lapse intervalometer mode where you can set it up. And they even have built-in sunrise and sunset settings so that you can adjust the exposure as the meter changes so you don't get that flickering effect that you see in a lot of uh, a lot of time lapse modes will have a little bit of a flickering because as the sun as the light in the in the um, in the shot starts to change the metering in the picture goes a little bit off and so there's a there's a flickering effect um, but yeah, magic so lantern bulb ramping where it's changing yeah. the exposure as the day gets brighter or darker and it's, I mean, it's it, in modern cameras, you're seeing it more and more. But if you have a camera that doesn't have it built in, um, I, I cannot suggest uh, a Magic Lantern enough. Uh, there is a little bit of a fear factor getting into it for the first time. It is not officially supported. Um, you do have to hack your camera a little bit and, and run it, run this firmware alongside the, the Canon firmware. Um, but the only, the only problem I've ever heard of or heard other people coming up with is they're they're afraid that it bricks their camera they're like oh my god i i don't i, I think i bricked my camera um just relax if that happens take out the battery put the battery back in take out the card put the card back in and you should be fine um but in the more modern releases, um, the more modern releases of Magic Lantern have been much more stable. It is a community-supported uh, firmware. So these guys that are developing it, and absolutely free, 100% free. Um, if you are a DSLR shooter and you want a lot of these features that these newer mirrorless cameras have, uh, this is a fantastic way to breathe new life into your camera. Uh, there, there are so, I mean, if you want to put false color into your camera, it, you know, for, for people who are shooting video and want to look at things in false color, like that's a, that's a feature that's that's only found in in cameras that are cost ten thousand dollars and up. So there are there are a lot of lot of fantastic features that are built into. What does that um, mean, false color? I, I don't know what that means. So false color, uh, it's it's particular. It's more used in video. Uh, so if uh, if you are looking at the exposure, one of the biggest things now that we have digital sensors is we want to make sure that we're not clipping the highlights. That's the 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 biggest faux pas that you can do because once you clip the highlights and and you expose uh, past the point where there's any information. It's just pure white. Um, you can never recover that back. Even if you're shooting in RAW, if, if you've blown out that pixel and you've clipped that highlight, you're never getting it back. Um, at the same time, you want to make sure that your skin tones are right in the pocket where it's going to look normal. Uh, so for for Sony cameras, I, uh, you want to expose somewhere between 60 to 70 uh, in 70 percent in your IRE. Um, considering that a great car, a great card is uh, is 18 percent, the back of your hand is going to be double that, and so you want to go about two stops higher than that for your skin tones, um, and that's going to be in a pocket that looks very natural uh, and feels very natural. But you want to make sure that you're not clipping any highlights, or and you want to make sure that you're also getting information in the shadows. So false color is an overlay on your LCD screen on just right on the back of the screen where the skin colors that are in the 16 to 70 range, those are all gonna appear as gray. 
uh, everything that's in the 30s to 40s is all going to appear as blue. Everything that's going to be 80s and 90s will go from pink to red. So you know exactly just by looking what the exposure levels of different parts you know of your just screen by are. Looking that everybody's a rainbow unicorn. <laughs> right it's 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 the rainbow it's the rainbow template for looking at it and it's that's so cool. much easier to see than uh than a histogram with the histogram you're like i think that spike is that window over there but with this you're like you know what it's those papers and that window right there that's where i'm blowing it you know what i'm okay with losing those highlights let's keep going very cool that that is super interesting you just taught me something that i definitely <laughs> did not know yeah, i did not know that i i'm my knowledge of of video is right at the medium level <laughs> there are some guys that i mean when you get really into video there's some crazy stuff that's very different from photography and i have never yeah. passed medium at video all right so i was talking with a group of photographers recently at a meetup about uh time lapse and several of them said that they never shoot time lapses uh, because you know you got to shoot like you know 200 pictures 900 pictures and then you're taking those individual frames and making them into a movie um and one of the uh, several of the people said that they don't like doing it because then it makes their Lightroom crazy because it, they have you know 900 pictures that they've got to scroll through. Um, and I just want to point out a quick feature: if you didn't know it, uh, you can just select the first and the last um, of those photos, and then go to stacking and group into stack, and whap, it puts all of those uh, in your Lightroom timeline into one with a little number showing that they're there. So if you have time lapses, you shoot time lapses periodically and you don't want it to mess up your, your Lightroom organization, just merge them into a stack and then everything will be nice and pretty again. Uh, okay. That's, that's, so, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so my, my question with that is after you have them in a stack, um, I'm, I'm not actually super familiar with doing time-lapse because, well, time-lapse tends to be more landscape-based stuff. How do you take those photos and make them into a video? Are you having to export them somewhere else? Um, what are you doing after that fact? After you have them in a stack, like you were talking about. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. I usually do it actually in Premiere, Adobe Premiere, uh, which is their, their video editing, um, the professional video editing software from Adobe. It's part of the Creative Cloud, if you have the full Creative Cloud. Uh, you can even do it just in Photoshop. A lot of programs will do it. But I, I uh, well, what I usually do is I, I, I click the first and the last photo, um, and I'll sync up my edits so that I can make all my Lightroom edits and have it affect all of the pictures equally. And then, I'll, yeah. uh, and then I will uh, usually do it in Premiere, but most people are going to do this in Photoshop. What, do you, how do you edit yours together, Stephen? Um, I actually, well, two ways. The, the more traditional way that I normally do it is through After Effects. Um, After Effects actually has an import setting where it'll import an image sequence and it'll import it just in whatever frame rate you want, 24 or 30. Um, but more recently, I've been doing it in um, DaVinci Resolve just because there's a little bit more uh, power in, in how much I can color it because it'll import everything as a raw. I can use uh, the, the, the color adjustments in, in uh, DaVinci are just a little bit more robust than than after effects so um so yeah I, I i can do all my coloring and importing and image sequencing in one step um i used to bring everything into uh lightroom do my adjustments there save the metadata and then import them into after effects um but davinci resolve now i just do it one stop and it's it's easier for me awesome very cool uh the next thing that i want to uh, recommend if you're interested in getting into time lapse is you have to, have to, have to check out 
Mike Olbinski. He's going to be talking at our conference um, in March in, in Phoenix. Mike is awesome. We've had him on the Tripod podcast. Um, his time lapses are out of this world. Uh, he does storm chasing uh, all over the place, uh, and he's doing time lapses of these tornadoes and storms, and they are just out of this world. And so if you're interested in getting inspired, you want to learn a little bit about time lapse, definitely check out Michael Binsky. And he even has some, uh, some workshops that he's doing storm chasing that look really, really, really cool. Yeah, I've become quite obsessed with looking at some of the stuff that he does because it is Man, it's beautiful. It's yeah. mesmerizing. So yeah. cool. Uh, all right, the the next tip that I want to share, maybe even the last, unless you guys have anything else to add for time lapse, is motion, motion, motion. Uh, a good time lapse is just you know put your camera on a tripod and let nature do the motion. You know of of clouds moving through that look like they're in fast motion and stuff. Um, that's good. But what, if you can shoot really wide, uh, you can actually go in Photoshop and, and you'll create an action that will move the frame one pixel each on each frame. And so it looks like you're, you're panning the camera as you're moving along. Or, of course, oh, cool. you could get something like this. Uh, I think it's called Serp, Serp Genie Mini, uh, which we did a review of on, on ImprovedPhotography.com this week. Um, S-Y-R-P, Genie Mini. Uh, just search for that on improved photography uh, and this is a little device uh, that will just move your camera a little bit during the uh, the time lapse something if you can add motion in a you know panning zooming whatever some kind of motion during the time lapse i mean it just takes it to a completely different level so it's definitely something to consider Yeah, I was going to say, if you're actually physically moving the camera, the, the fantastic thing about products like this is that you get a parallax effect. At least if you if you were composing in a very creative way where you have something in the foreground mm -hmm. and something else in the background, as that camera moves, you get that really, really awesome parallax effect. And it's just, it's almost impossible to, to pull off, which is why I'm so in awe of it whenever I see it. Um, but yeah, this 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 uh, hyperlapse phenomenon is, is, is just such a great way to... To, to show the movement of, of something over such a long period of time. I, I'm in awe of these time-lapse guys because the one thing that they're able to do so well is they're, it's like they're able to predict the future. Like they, it's, how, how do you know if you're going to have a gorgeous sunset? There's no way to know before it happens. So you have to set up before it happens and then make sure everything is good and wait, take a thousand pictures, and then hopefully it was something gorgeous and something beautiful. And if not, well... You know, two hours of your life. We'll try again tomorrow. So, like these these time lapse guys, they 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 really plan everything out, and I have so much respect for for that process. Very cool. Yeah, that's that seems pretty crazy to me because even just with my tiny stint in landscape photography, I couldn't hardly set up a frame and sit there for more than five or ten minutes before I decided I needed to move on. So to be able to pick out exactly what you want your image to be and just sit there for, as you said, two hours while the sun sets or while the sun rises, that, that is something that is impressive and definitely admirable. Very cool. Well, uh, this week we want to share with you a doodad of the week. Um, today, I want to uh, share a little something that I picked up on Amazon, um, and it is a Lexar Professional 1000X uh, memory card um, in the 128 gigabyte version. Um, so whenever you're buying memory cards, I guess the first thing that I'll say uh, with memory cards is 
don't pay full price. Memory cards go on sale all the time. And so if you are proactive about buying your memory cards and you don't wait don't wait until you need a new memory card, you can find them on, on great sales, 50% off sales all the time on memory cards. Anyway, but the, the point that I want to uh, bring this up, not that this is some kind of revolutionary memory card, uh, is that I am moving all my cards up to um, UHS-3 and 128 gigabyte in all of the new cards that I purchase uh, I'm getting UHS-3 and uh, 128 gigabyte. Uh, and the reason is because of 4K video and incredibly fast frame rates. Um, I, I never like buying a memory card for just what my camera needs today because the memory card's gonna last a few years. And I, so I want something that's gonna future-proof me a little bit so I don't have to always be buying new cards. Uh, so I, I, I like the 128 gigabyte because, you know, like time lapse, you know, if you're shooting 900 <laughs> raw files and then you're going <laughs> to still spend the rest of the day shooting, uh, that's, well, that's, you know, going to use an, a lot of data. Um, and 4K video is obviously going to rip through your data as well. And so I'm, I'm buying only 128 now. Uh, there, there are 256, 512, and even terabyte now. Um, but the reason that I'm going with 128 is it's, it's just below the curve. You know, it, once you go up to 256, the price is really starting to skyrocket. And it's rare that I'm going to fill a 256 gigabyte card without dumping. It's crazy. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's just my uh, tip for the week, I guess, is uh, to, to maybe move it up next time you buy a card. Connor, awesome. You? awesome. Um, mine has a little bit of a weird name. It's Kupo or something of that sort. K-U-P-O. Koopa Troopa. Monitor adapter. I love that. Koopa <laughs> <laughs> Troopa Beach from Sega Genesis. Yeah, totally. Koopa Troopas are the best. No, I mean, not really. You got it. Four, wasn't it? I, who cares? It, okay, I've derailed something this. <laughs> Mario related. <laughs> well, anyway, it's it's just kind of a flat plate um, that has an articulating. It's it's a double ball head um, with a mount that goes on top of a light stand. Um, I I have really become fond of these in the past few months because you're able to mount a lot of different things. So I can kind of make a little makeshift table if I need to to shoot something on. I I can um, just Velcro on a piece of plexiglass, or I have a stand that I can put my laptop on. It's it's just a flat plate that goes onto a. Um, onto a light stand that you can kind of articulate at a bunch of different angles and it can be really useful when shooting in studio. So I use it for a, um, a tether table for my computer every once in a while. And as I'm doing more and more product photography, I'm finding it very useful for getting an object on a table that is also very small so I can get light modifiers in close to it. And that, that tends to be pretty helpful. Um, it's kind of hard to find really small surfaces that you can angle around in any other way. So I think that these things are kind of ma made to put monitors or different things on there, but you don't necessarily have to use it that way. And I've found myself not using it that way, just <laughs> using it as kind of a, a makeshift angleable table that I've been enjoying. Oh, that's cool. That is cool. You know, I I uh, used to recommend, uh, and I still love it. It's a little device called the tripod. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember these, uh, but it it just it just has a triangle that that slips over the top of your tripod, and then it's this nice table to put a laptop for when you're shooting tethered. It was the oh, cool. best device. It was awesome, and they don't make them anymore. Uh, when I Google oh. it, it doesn't even huh. bring up a website or anything. But tons of people in the industry I knew used them. I love mine. I use it regularly. Um, but I don't know. The company just stopped. I should contact them and be like, hey, 
Let's buy a patent, buddy. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should uh, put this company back in business because they were awesome and you can't buy them anymore. Yeah, that yeah, seems that, like such a simple and easy and almost obvious thing to like, oh, of course, just put it on a tripod, tripod and then uh, then you're ready to go. Yeah, I, that's were, brilliant. Yeah, great. I'm going to find out who made this thing. Maybe we can resurrect <laughs> the tripod. Bring it back. Have I mean, easy. in the meantime, use the Kupo monitor adapter. Until, in the meantime, right. <laughs> yes. In, until, we, uh, until we buy this company and resurrect it. Yeah. How about you, Steven? Uh, oh, so I have something. It's called the Loop Deck. I saw this recently. It's currently on Indiegogo, so you actually can't go out and buy it today. Duh. But this thing looks so cool. I am, I am inches away from actually putting money into the. I, I very rarely do crowdfunding stuff just because they, uh, you wait a long time. It's usually never exactly what you expect, and sometimes they don't deliver. But this thing looks phenomenal it's a um it's a controller it's an external controller it's usb powered and it's specifically made to edit in lightroom um now i've seen things in the past that will kind of map uh midi midi controllers uh for lightroom and things like that but what this does is it has different knobs and wheels uh, for all the different panels in Lightroom so that you can, with your hands, just very kinesthetically feel all the different things that you can change in Lightroom. Because, um, I mean, I don't know about you guys, when I'm when I'm doing hundreds of photos and I'm just, I'm dragging my mouse or I'm even just dragging my pen, it, it's, it's very, there's a lot of mental fatigue in just going through those panels one by one by one. If you can get your hands on actual physical knobs and wheels, it starts to feel a little bit more like you're playing an instrument and you're fine tuning something. And and there's I'm I'm very I, I'm a very big believer in having a, uh, a, a, a kinesthetic connection to your work. It makes you feel more grounded and and uh, in touch with it. So I I think some way to make your art with your hands that's not just uh, interacting with the mouse. I think this is going to be um, something that can uh, change the way people work. Yeah, I've I've definitely checked this out as well. Um, for me, it, the price is getting yeah. me a little bit because it, yeah. it does look like I mean it's it's definitely cool. You're you're using your hands to change everything, but it kind of just looks like a keyboard with a bunch of knobs on it instead of keys. And I I think that it comes in right around what two hundred three hundred dollars somewhere like that. Two fifty is the is the early bird uh, price, or if you wait till it comes out, it's going to be four hundred. And you know, for Oof. a lot of people, that's a lens, you know. And so it's it's a tough it's a tough call. Like that price point. It, for me also is what kind of makes it puts me on the fence. It definitely puts me on the fence. Yeah. I, I was definitely glad to see a company pushing this out. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, what is it called? Palette gear um, mm -hmm. that has mm -hmm. yes. the, the modular sliders and buttons and things like that. And it, it reminds me a lot of that, but it seems to be more directly made for Lightroom where palette right. gear is something that can kind of be customized to use in a bunch of different programs. Um, but I, I mean, I believe that it's essentially just a MIDI controller yeah, um, yeah. with with its own special little features. Do you know if the Loop Deck has mechanical sliders um, or if there is some sort of advantage to go with this system and hope that it gets funded through Indiegogo rather than buying a currently out or a product that is currently out, such as Palette Gear? I don't think I mean, for, it looks like it, from from what I'm looking at. I mean, and I'm I don't speak for the the company. I don't know, but it looks it looks like it's a, a MIDI a MIDI controller. Um, yeah. it, that looks like the the, the technology behind it. Um, I, I like the placement of the knobs and the wheels, but yeah, it's 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 a four hundred dollar um, doodad that's just <laughs> for Lightroom. Uh, 
And I mean, if you're spending a lot of hours behind Lightroom and you're getting a lot of uh, decision fatigue from, you know, using that mouse and cursoring over all the different things, then I can definitely see why it's worth it. I, I want one because I want to play with one. But you're <laughs> absolutely right. This price point for me, you know, that's a uh, that's that's either like a, a weekend trip or it's yeah. uh, it's a uh, you know maybe a new uh, cheap lens or something. So there there are definitely um, some drawbacks to that price. Oh, believe me. I mean, I, I totally understand the appeal of a product like this. My finger has mm. been over the hovering over the purchase button on Palette <laughs> Gear a uh -huh. number of times until I go, but really, I probably shouldn't. It's not a need. It's more of a want because oh, I yeah. do like the ergonomics of and the kinesthetic interaction that you have right. and being able to hand m move and adjust everything the way that you want. But mm -hmm. yeah, for me, it, it just, it doesn't seem horribly, horribly impressive. Not to mention the fact that now that Apple has changed their ports on their MacBook pro, you're oh, going to have God. to buy an adapter yeah. for it. And I mean, not that you, won't have to do that already for some USB Everything devices, else, but, right. but yeah, it, it seems like a really cool thing. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. I want I, a friend I of mine to buy interesting one. Interesting for sure. I, I, for me, this one's a little iffy. And so I decided, eh, I'm going to wait, see if this catches on and then maybe I'll sign up. Uh, it, and it's one of those things, man, that price point difference between two fifty and $400, depending on if you get in and fund it before it's made versus buying it after it's made. Yeah. That's, that's a big difference. But mm -hmm. I mean, to me, I, I just look at that and say, well, they already have, there already are products that do essentially the same thing out on the market already for yeah. about the price of their Indiegogo price. They're mm -hmm. hopefully will get funded price. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would have trouble buying this, but at the same time, I, it is a tempting offer. It's a it's a want. It's a want, not necessarily a need. Yeah, <laughs> that's why it's a doodad. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> we got a lot of those in there. <laughs> very cool. Well, guys, thank you very much for your time and uh, sharing with us on on the Improved Photography Podcast. It was fun talking with you uh, on this episode and, and uh, hearing some of the things you're doing. Uh, Steven and Connor, thanks for uh, being on, and we will catch everybody in another seven days. Mm -hmm.